it's another wonderful opportunity that we have to come together this evening. And in fact, as we have each known for some time, we continue our study of the Revelation to tonight. That has been our study now for the past four weeks, and we look forward to the continuation this evening as well as in the weeks to come. And all over the course of this study, needless to say, the book of Revelation has brought forth many various thoughts and ideas throughout the ages and the centuries, and many of them have been very captivating, certainly to the mind. And our study has as its goal to build upon the revelation of the Scriptures, not only in this book, but in those that precede it, to arrive at the best idea that we can appreciate by virtue of the Bible, to understand God's message for us in this book. In fact, by way of introduction, some of the thoughts concerning what we've learned already might be very helpful, especially as we consider this evening's lesson. As you might remember, for the last two weeks, we have made an effort to consider the seven churches of Asia. And as we did so, we noticed that those congregations in Ephesus and Smyrna, at Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, were congregations that had a variety of difficulties and problems, and the Lord addressed specific letters to them with the issue of encouraging them in that which they needed to make right, and to also continue to make them steadfast in what they were already doing that that was correct and proper. But there's a rather dramatic shift as we move from chapters 3 into chapter 4. I'm sure as you read that with me in the preceding days, perhaps, you might have noted that there is again a fundamental change. Perhaps chapter 1, verse 19, will aid us as much as any to set the idea for where we'll be heading tonight. For back in verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord told John these words, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. John had written what he had seen because that was the contents of chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 were those things that were, that is, present tense at that time, But beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, we have those things which shall be hereafter. The recognition then of the greatness and the power of what was future for the day of John. As we thus proceed to look at chapter 4, might I suggest this evening that we take a careful consideration beginning at this chapter and notice that it falls in a section of the Scriptures between chapters 4 and 11, which might well be called the seven-sealed book. That will be the central theme from tonight's lesson all the way until we finish chapter 11. The issue surrounding the loosing of the seals of the seven-sealed book and observing that which will take place when the seals are loosed. Now, we will notice, in fact, in the lesson next Sunday evening, that the first four seals are loosed very, very quickly. The next two take a bit longer, and we'll have to wait all the way until chapters 10 and 11 until the seventh seal is loosed. But this issue of loosing the seals of that book will take us through the next eight chapters of the book of Revelation. By way of tonight's lesson then, to set the stage for the loosing of those seals, we need to ask what seals are we talking about? What significance do they have and who is able to loose them? And that is tonight's lesson. The book of Revelation is so logically presented. In order to have the seals loosed, we first need to know what are the seals and who is powerful or able enough to loose them. And tonight's lesson in chapters 4 and 5 will set the stage for that. Interestingly, chapter 4 first casts the spotlight upon God himself, sitting on the throne in his awesomeness and in his majesty, 
And then when we come to chapter 5 later tonight, we will notice that the spotlight is now focused squarely upon Jesus Christ, the blessed Son of God. And He too is worthy of praise and worthy of adoration and exaltation. And thus, these two chapters tonight will give us a beautiful scene in heaven in which we see the overwhelming power and greatness of both God and the Son. Without further ado then, let us come to chapter 4, verse 1. And in fact, at this point, let's simply go ahead and read the entirety of chapter 4. It consists of but 11 verses. And as we read this, keep in mind that we are interested in what John saw. Because according to Revelation 1.11, he was told what you see right in a book. Let's see what John saw. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God." And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying... Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. At that point then, with chapter 4 having been read, may we again ask, what was it that John saw? Verse number 1 begins with some notes that I have prepared to guide us in our thinking throughout the course of this chapter. We begin by noting that John saw a door opened in heaven. As he saw that door opened in heaven we have an immediate recognition and appreciation of the fact that this open door was symbolic of the grandness of the fact that to those saints and those who are the children of God, heaven is open. Is it not true that we read in 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. Though it may have been true that the Roman Empire and the Caesars who ruled had no interest in Christians, they would close the door if you will, in their face, had no interest whatsoever in the claims of Christianity and the power with which those Christians survived. That was not true of heaven. They had a loving God in heaven and He did care about them. His door was open, if you will, and He was able to see clearly and powerfully the things which they faced and to provide for them the aid and the sustenance that they needed day by day. 
and thus an open door was a rather powerful symbol to be represented. But let us return and note, that was not all that John saw. In addition to that open door, notice that again a voice, as of a trumpet, and notice that the voice that he heard back in chapter number 1 was also as of a trumpet. This overwhelmingly powerful voice that captured his attention yet spake again. And note that this voice exhibited to him a beautiful invitation. May we again notice the section of verse 1. Come up hither, and I will show thee things which be hereafter. Here was then a direct statement of a revelation of that which was in the future from John's time. No human by his or her own nature can know about the future. Here was the tender plea, though, of that voice that again sounded as if it were a trumpet, inviting John to come, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter, things that would be in the future from the day of John. Might we, though, pause to note clearly that though it was in the future from the time of John, it may now well be in the past for you and me. For some almost 2,000 years have passed since John's day. This tender invitation, though, went on. Because notice in verse 2, immediately John was in the Spirit. In chapter 1, we learn that on the Lord's day he found himself in the Spirit, and that's when the first revelation was received. We notice now, he again is in the Spirit. And immediately he proceeds to see marvelous things which were truly amazing to his viewpoint. Verse number 2. I saw a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Immediately we notice this scene takes place in heaven. It was not a figment of his imagination. It was not otherwise located. It was a scene in heaven. And it, of course, was on the other side of that door that he had just seen in verse 1, that door that was opened in heaven through which John was able to view one sitting on the throne. The marvelous wonder of this one sitting on the throne, we can only ask, who is this on the throne? And what position does he occupy? Notice further, we have in verse 3 a description. And he that sat was to look upon like as a jasper and a sardine stone. Two very precious gems in the ancient day. Now, a jasper could be found in many different colors, and so in all likelihood, the color especially was not a powerful idea to be taken from verse 3. Jaspers could be found in everything from green to red and, and seemingly every color in between. Furthermore, a sardine stone. In the Greek, that's the word carnelian, as I've indicated on, on the screen. That, too, was a very precious gem in that day. And again, it, too, occurred in a variety of colors both of which indicate that as John peered through this open door and saw this one sitting on the throne, the brilliance of this one was so great that the thing which came closest to John's imagination for the description was these precious and beautiful ancient stones, which truly would be for you and me a recognition of the grandness and the superseding brilliance of what he saw. As we look onward in verse 3, he saw a rainbow stretched over the throne. Isn't it amazing? Here we have another Old Testament recollection. You and I remember that the rainbow is first mentioned in the Holy Scriptures in Genesis 9, where after the scene of the flood of Noah's day, God, by virtue of sealing the promise to Noah and his family, placed a rainbow in the sky. 
And that rainbow was a sign of two things. One, never again would he destroy the earth by a global flood of water. But two, it was a sign of his justice in that he punished the wicked and he saved those that were innocent. Well, notice that here was then one enthroned in glory and in all his brilliance that John saw in heaven. And this rainbow reminiscent of the great judgment scene of Genesis 9. And the fact that this one will always do that which is right. Doesn't that remind us of Genesis 18.25? When there the question is asked, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This one then that we see, described again in verse 3, notice this rainbow inside appears as an emerald, another beautiful and very precious stone. It may be that you and I have possession of emeralds or have seen them in department stores or in other places. The three stones mentioned in verse 3 highlight the brilliance and greatness of the one that he saw. And quickly our mind rushes to verse number 4. Round about this throne, is it not a fascinating scene to notice that as he saw, not only was this one on the throne, there were other beings there. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And a better rendering of that word seats would be thrones. So there was one major central throne, and round about it were 24 other or lesser thrones, if you will. And sitting upon these 24 thrones were 24 elders. The interesting and marvelous fact here of what John saw reminds us yet one more time of the marvelous goodness of what does this number 24 represent. There's been many discussions about the character of that fact. It would seem from its occurrence here and in the chapter that follows that this number 24 is very significant in that it is symbolic of all of the saved of all time, both Old and New Testament, as they offer worship and honor and homage to the very one who was enthroned centrally on the major throne that he had just seen in verses 2 and 3. In other words... We might note that there were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. There were 12 apostles in the New, and 12 plus 12 is 24. Perhaps indicative of the fact that here God has made ample protection and ample means for the salvation of all of both Old and New Testament regions and times when they submit humbly and prayerfully and willfully to that which He has declared. That be the case then this number 24 is again a rather powerful idea for those who were ruling on these thrones that John saw were those represented from each testament, both Old and New Testament as well. The interesting part then that we might pause at a moment and note, these 24 thrones encircled the main throne, the one in which God himself was sitting on. Doesn't that remind us then of the majesty as well as the greatness of God? Isn't it an amazing thing for us to remember that the Bible throughout, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, exalts the sovereignty, and in fact, if anything, that is the major central theme in all of the Bible. God is absolutely supreme, and He reigns on the throne of the entire universe and of all other things as well. Daniel declared in Daniel 4.25, God ruleth in the kingdoms of men. In Nahum 1, verses 3 through 7, we read there of the fact that God never acquits the wicked. The wicked will certainly pay before the eyes of the great God of heaven. Noticing then that these ideas have set the stage for who we are seeing. 
might we observe further what else John saw? In verse number 5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Immediately we make recollection of other times in the Bible where we have seen these things brought together, namely thunderings and lightnings and voices. In Exodus 19, Perhaps to our mind races that scene and occasion in which God called Moses to come upon Mount Sinai and there God delivered that which we call that Old Testament law of Moses, highlighted by the Ten Commandments. But as they came to Mount Sinai, what happened to Mount Sinai? The text of Exodus 19.6 informs us that there were thunderings and there were lightnings and there were gigantic, tremendous occurrences reminiscent of the greatness of God's power and the effect of the giving of His will. Here, as John saw then this scene in heaven with voices and thunderings and lightnings, reminiscent of not only the greatness of the one on the throne, but how significant the revelation he's about to receive is. But that being said, John's mind is then prepared to notice at the end of verse 5, He also noticed seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, and we are told what these are, seven spirits of God. Isn't it interesting to see and to visualize and imagine that in our mind? Perhaps this can help us some. Here's a picture. An artist's attempt to describe in a visual fashion what we have to this point described so far in chapter 4. As we notice... There is the greatness and tremendous brightness of the throne. You'll notice thunderings and lightnings that are drawn outward from it. And around about it are some 24, if you count them, and I had to do that myself to make sure there are 24 thrones sitting around it in the lowest level. But out in front, and you may not be able to see it as clearly, but sitting here there are seven lamps burning. An attempt, again, to visually bring to our mind what it was that John's here describing for us. As we ask and note furthermore, there are other elements of that picture that we haven't yet gotten to, but we will shortly before this chapter and the next one finishes. Because in verse number 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto a crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now the King James rendering, beasts, perhaps isn't the best for you and me today. The phrase living creatures would perhaps do a better job representative of the original Greek. And in this picture, the artist has already put the four living creatures. Here they are in front. As you can notice, they are rather unusual creatures. For after all, that which we can appreciate and see from verses 7 and 8 is this. The first was like a lion the second like a calf, the third had the face as of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Immediately we may pause and ask, what is the significance of these creatures that have these varieties of appearances? Like a lion, like a flying eagle, faces of a man. What's the significance and meaning of these? And yet one more time, our mind races to the Old Testament. Was there ever a time when an Old Testament character saw anything like this? For if so, that may shed important light on the meaning here. The answer is yes. In Ezekiel chapter 1, 
the prophet Ezekiel. Saul, in fact, was given a remarkable vision as that book opened. And in that vision, he saw not only a wheel, a flying wheel, but prior to that, he saw four creatures. And those creatures were remarkably similar to the ones John describes here. In fact, the similarity is so strong, it could not be accidental. What was the meaning of those which Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 1, do we know? Perhaps briefly, we can state the following. In Ezekiel chapter 1, as well as Isaiah chapter 6, these creatures that in Isaiah's time were called seraphim and had six wings, these that John saw also had six wings. Do we again see some similarities? The answer is yes. What was the message of those that was given to both Ezekiel and to Isaiah? At the end of Ezekiel chapter 1, the message is relatively clear. These creatures were symbolic of the all-reaching character of God's sovereignty and power, how that He overrules all of creation, regardless of what specific appearance or form it may take. In other words, it is a symbolic way of stating the greatness and glory of God in every aspect and respect, including that of the human kingdom. Thus, these creatures that John saw as he peered through that door and saw the greatness of this throne highlights, highlights the grandness of God's power in every regime and in every aspect of the universe and all the life forms contained therein. It is a beautiful thing to behold. Ezekiel got the message back in Ezekiel 1 and so did Isaiah in Isaiah 6. For if you remember Isaiah, upon seeing the greatness of these seraphim, he said, Here am I, Lord, send me. He knew that what he had just seen was so overwhelmingly powerful, he could do nothing but respond in open obedience to that which had been proclaimed. We shall see that in many ways John will do the same. It is a remarkable thing to notice, though, that John isn't finished. Having illustrated God's greatness in the variety of these Four beasts, which we can return and look at more carefully now. These four beasts presented left to right as they are indicative of the greatness and power of God. What do these flying creatures do? What do these living creatures bring about? Notice that in verse number 8, they rest not day nor night. These creatures are never those which, in fact, out of laziness or otherwise rest, but continuously and constantly and always they proclaim, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Their sole purpose, it would seem, is the absolute praising of God in every aspect and in every fiber of their being and constitution. Doesn't that help to teach us how great God is? And that we too should always be those to fall humbly before His presence and recognize that we are in fact so lowly before His eyes. He is all-powerful and we are not. As these points are emphasized for our consideration, verse 9 makes one other statement about these beasts or these living creatures. It says that when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, the elders responded... How did they respond? We notice that it's, the text says in verses 8 and following that the four and twenty elders fall down also 
before the one on the throne and worship him and cast their crowns before him. That empty slide was supposed to have been a screen having the crowns on it, and I see that somehow it did not appear on this occasion, so you'll have to take my word for that. As those crowns are cast, we might remember that they were golden. Those indicate not only purity, but also a degree of regal authority and power. And in the casting of them, it is another absolute symbolic declaration of the greatness of the one on the throne. To this point, if we had to summarize chapter 4, it would clearly be a recognition of God's power. As these bow before, cast their crowns before Him, and as we see the other recognition of these four creatures, that in fact highlight His greatness over all aspects of creation. We aren't quite finished with the chapter, though, for in verse number 11, there's a proclamation by these 24 elders. What is it that they say? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Might we play a special emphasis to verse 11? For the following reason, why is it that they proclaimed God so great? Was it for, on this occasion, the sacrifice of Jesus? No. Was it on this occasion for the other aspects of his other being in the New Testament era? No. The special reason is for thou hast created all things. Might we pause and at least learn another lesson? That any time we call into question God's creative activity, whether it be by those who are atheists or those who are agnostics or those who are absolute evolutionists, when you call into question the greatness of the creative power of God, you are in fact throwing into the wind all of Revelation chapter 4. For the very testimony of those 24 elders was in light of His creation. That's the reason that they testified and proclaimed His name. That's the reason they, in fact, worshipped Him so powerfully as that chapter closed. Oh, may we never then underestimate what the creation of God testifies to all of us. And with that stated, chapter 4 closes. We have been given a majestic scene Sometimes it's called the throne room scene of heaven. And all the while, we have been led to appreciate God's greatness from a number of perspectives. However, that only leads us to chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is not a fundamentally new matter. The scene continues as it were. We are still seeing what's happening in heaven. It's just the central figure for this chapter is not the central one on the throne, nor is it the four living creatures, nor is it the 24 elders. It is someone else that's going to enter the scene. If you can imagine sitting, say, in a theater, as the curtain opens, what we've seen so far has again taken place in heaven, and now there's another character about to enter from stage left or right, and this other character is going to take significant part and will be the central character of this chapter. Let us then turn and read chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, and see what else John saw. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, 
written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. For the lion, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation." And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. As you can see from that reading, that new character that entered was the central figure of this chapter and in fact was the one who took the various characteristics thereof. And thus in this chapter, what is it that John continued to see? Well, one by one. First, in the right hand of the one sitting on that throne, the one that we had said earlier, John said, was likened to a jasper in appearance or a carnelia. He said in his right hand he held a book, a scroll if you will. Not just any ordinary scroll. It had writing on both sides, and it was sealed seven times. That indicates a couple of things. First, the fact that the writing was on both sides means there was a great amount to reveal. It was a full book, if you will. Not only that, the fact it was sealed seven times means this is heaven's official document. The seal in the ancient time was a means of declaring something official. In other words, indicative of its authority. Here, God, it was sealed seven times. That indicates for us, again, by way of another feature, that number seven, that indicates the perfection, the completeness of all that's contained in this scroll. Might we now take note that this scroll that's sitting in the right hand of God, what was to happen to it? Notice, verse number two, a strong angel next makes a statement. This strong angel is indicative of one who in his own right was powerful. But note that this strong angel said, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals? 
That book, again, was written on both sides. It was full. It was overflowing with the revelation of God. John was greatly desirous to have it loosed and to hear what was contained in it. However, not just anybody can open God's revelatory book. In fact, the strong angel says, Who is worthy to take the book, to break the seals, and to loose the contents? Notice verse 3 perhaps begins with some bad news. No man in heaven, in earth, or under the earth was worthy, was able to take the book, open the seals, and loose the contents. It would seem that the drama that we are about to, that we were desirous of appreciating, is about to end before it even starts. Who is worthy to open the book? Who's worthy to loose the seals? In response to that fact, John wept much. Verse 4. Notice that John was fearful that no one was going to be found worthy of opening this book and loosing and making known what was contained in it. However, he was comforted. Verse number 4. I'm sorry, verse number 5. One of those elders, one of the 24 elders that we've made note of in the previous chapter, said unto me, Weep not. John, don't cry. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And suddenly what was bad news is now exceedingly good news for this elder informed John, John, don't cry. There is one who's worthy to take the book, to loose the seals, and to make known the contents. Well, who is it? Verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Another set of Old Testament references. The lion of the tribe of Judah takes us back to Genesis chapter 49, where on that occasion, the aged Jacob, shortly before his own death, as he prophesied to his twelve sons about the matters that would befall them in future days, as he spoke to Judah, he especially said, The scepter shall not depart from thy house until Shiloh come. For indeed, the very words, the lion, the scepter, represented yet one more time in that very text. And in Hebrews 7, verse 14, we are told that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Jesus was of the line of Judah, but that isn't all. Notice the root of David. Many Old Testament references draw to our attention that fact, and I have attempted to list several of them for you. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, the stock of Jesse, indicative of David, is again noted. In Isaiah 53, yet again David, and there Jesus is under discussion and prophecy. In Jeremiah 23, 5, expressly noted for us the fact of the root or stem of David. Perhaps we can remember another significance of this lamb. Remember that it was the case that John first recognized a lion, but in verse 6, what had the lion become? A lamb. What was a lion is now this lamb, and immediately to our mind comes John one twenty nine. John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. There can be no question this one then who had prevailed to open the seals and to loose the contents was none other than Jesus the Christ. And isn't it interesting that the plot only thickens? Because in verse 6, this one, this lamb, had in fact seven horns and seven eyes. Another usage of the number seven. Note the completeness 
Note the purity and absolute perfection of that which is stated. The number seven is a number that again identifies perfection. We had seen in chapter 1, seven spirits of God indicative of the Holy Spirit. And yet one more time, that seven spirits is mentioned here, but it has gone forth into all the earth. The Holy Spirit has made known the perfection of God's will. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10. That perfection you and I have in disposal when, you, when we open the pages of God's Word. Perhaps that does lead then to this figure or this picture. Notice on the left, we have the recognition of this one holding a scroll. We notice that there's a lamb and in the background a lion. And perhaps you can't count it, but there are seven eyes on the lamb as well as seven horns on its head. As this is what John saw, it highlights for us the figurative, or that is to say, the visual means of interpreting the symbols in this beautiful book. And as John saw these things, may we observe what occurred next. For after all, verse 7, this lamb came and took the book out of the right hand. Can you imagine the glory of Christ taking the right hand of taking the book out of the right hand of God? For that's what took place. And in verse eight, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. Notice that they fall in the adoration of worship, and as such, every one of them possessed various things. Now, might we note that we will return and make an observation about that which they possessed in just a moment. But might we continue in our story or in the Revelation just for a moment. As we return to that previous screen, we notice that the praise that they heaped upon God and the Lamb when the Lamb took the book. At the bottom of that particular screen, I ask you to notice that they sang a new song. What's the significance of that song? What's the reason for that praise? Well, let us notice verse 9. They sang a new song, and this is what the song included. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And so they're speaking or proclaiming greatness upon Jesus. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. So they are recollecting now the greatness that was upon this lamb due to the fact that he was crucified, slain. And by that act, he redeemed us to God out of every nation, tongue, kindred, and people of all earth, the universal character of God's empire. Isn't it a wonderful scene that these are praising God for the redemptive nature of the blood of Christ and how that all have access to the glory of that blood? Furthermore, verse 10, And hast made us unto God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. The praise then that we observe and see is such that in verse number 10, they were recognizing a kingdom that was already in existence. This kingdom that John saw was already in existence. For the verb that is used in verse 10, has made. It was not something yet to be in the future. We learn from Acts 20, verse 28, that that kingdom was the church. It was purchased by Christ's blood. And thus, the church is here what's referred to by this kingdom. And sure enough, in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9, we are called priests, and that is again mentioned in verse number 10 of Revelation 5. 
we're beginning to pile up some beautiful thoughts about the nature of the praise heaped upon God in chapter 4, but now upon Jesus in chapter 5. Verse 11 continues onward. We notice that as John beheld, he noticed and heard the voice of many angels. In fact, more angels than could be numbered. Thousands of thousands of them, he said. That takes us back to that picture that we looked at earlier. You may have noted there. Round about, there's more than 24 images round about it. The 24 at the bottom are those elders, but all the faces of these others down here that simply fade into the distance, those are the numberless angels that are praising and honoring, and in fact, adoring the greatness of God and His Son, and thus returning to where we were. The Bible elsewhere describes for us the numberless character of angels. In Hebrews, for example, chapter 12, verse 22, it is said to be an innumerable company of angels. And later in chapter 7 of this very book of Revelation, we will again see a large, large host. As we do all of these things, may we observe how much God is worthy of our honor, our respect, and our worship. Here's all the host of heaven worshiping God, worshiping the Son, recognizing the greatness of them. At this point, as the chapter races to its conclusion, might we note the anthem that they sang in verse number 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and glory and honor and blessing and strength. What an encompassing statement of greatness and dominion. In verses 13 and 14, the 24 elders, as well as all creation, John sees in a symbolic way worshiping and falling before the greatness of the Lamb and adoring Him for what He had accomplished. Later we will see something like this in a different fashion when we arrive at chapter 11. But for right now, might we at least observe a quick set of lessons based on this scene. There are some who have looked upon the text of Revelation 5 and have seen any it reasons, or so they think, for the modification of New Testament worship. In other words, in chapter 5, verse number 8, we notice that here every one of them had harps, as it's mentioned there, and also golden bowls full of odors. Might that then be a license for you and me to, say, use a harp in a worship? or a guitar, or a piano, or any other mechanical instrument that we might so choose? And the answer, again, must be an overwhelming no, for a number of reasons. First of all, this scene is in heaven, not on earth. But not only that, may we ask, if that were a license to be interpreted literally in that fashion, what else would it require? As I've tried to point out, might we read verse 8 again and place some added emphasis on one of the adjectives employed. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. It is significant, every one of them. It would not be enough to have one or two playing in a band or one or two or even a small number. Each and every person would have to play a harp without exception if we were to take this literally as a requirement for the characteristics of New Testament worship. Did we see in the book of Acts 
For instance, those who worshipped and all played harps, we did not. Indicative of the fact this thus cannot be used as a license or requirement to mandate such today. But not only that, as the verse closes, note that incense is mentioned. May we suggest that if this were to be taken as a license for the playing of instrument, we must also burn incense and work.